You're listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Liberty, too, must be limited in order to be possessed. The degree of restraint, it is impossible in any case to settle precisely, but it ought to be the constant aim of every wise public counsel to find out by cautious experiments and rational, cool endeavors with how little, not how much, of this restraint the community can subsist. For liberty is a good to be improved and not an evil to be lessened. It is not only a private blessing of the first order, but the vital spring and energy of the state itself, which has just so much life and vigor as there is liberty in it. But whether liberty be advantageous or not, for I know it is a fashion to decry the very principle, none will dispute that peace is a blessing, and peace must, in the course of human affairs, be frequently bought by some indulgence, and toleration at least, to liberty. For as the Sabbath, though of divine institution, was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, government, which can claim no higher origin or authority, in its exercise at least, ought to conform to the exigencies of the time, and the temper and character of the people with whom it is concerned, and not always to attempt violently to bend the people to their theories of subjection. The bulk of mankind, on their part, are not excessively curious concerning any theories whilst they are really happy. And one sure symptom of an ill-conducted state is the propensity of the people to resort to them. Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is, of course, Garrett Ashley Mullet. That was, of course, Edmund Burke in his letter to sheriffs. I just recently, as of yesterday, end of day yesterday, finished up Russell Kirk's biography of Edmund Burke. Edmund Burke, a genius reconsidered. It is included with Audible Plus. If you have an Audible Plus membership, subscription, what have you. You can read this book, listen to this book for free. I would recommend it. It is quite excellent. But the publisher's summary for this one says, Russell Kirk has ingeniously combined into a living whole the private Burke and the public Burke. He gives us a fresh assessment of Burke, a statesman enjoying even greater influence today than in his own time. He lucidly unfolds Burke's philosophy, showing how it revealed itself in concrete historical situations in the 18th century, and how Burke, through his philosophy, speaks to our age. This volume makes vivid the four great struggles in the life of Burke, his work for conciliation with the American colonies, his involvement in cutting down the domestic power of George III, his prosecution of Warren Hastings, the Governor General of India, and his resistance to Jacobinism, the French Revolution's armed doctrine. In each of these great phases of his public life, Burke fought with passionate eloquence and relentless logic for justice, 
and for the proper balance of order and freedom. With sure instinct, born of his sympathy and understanding, Russell Kirk gives us the incisive quotation, the illuminating highlight, the moving all too human elements that bring Burke and his times to vivid life. I would attest to that. I can attest to that. This is someone we need to become acquainted with, quite simply. We need to study Edmund Burke. He is the father of modern political conservatism. And so if you want to say you are conservative, the question should always come back again and again to, what does that mean? What does it mean to be a conservative? What are you conservative about? Why are you conserving? And what is the alternative to being a conservative? Is it that you are either for conserving or for moving forward? You're stuck in the past, like some kind of a Neanderthal man, motivated, driven by fear, or are you more highly evolved as the progressives and liberals like to suppose themselves? Are you more highly evolved than these reactionaries and therefore you're moving forward, up, up, and away to bigger and brighter tomorrows? It's important to note, as you read Burke, that he was not opposed to change. He wasn't opposed to progress. And he certainly wasn't opposed to reform. In fact, one of the unexpected things you'll find when you study Burke and when you study conservative political philosophy is that that's part of what being a conservative requires. That's part of what you're conserving is a tradition of reform. And it's interesting. I was thinking to myself yesterday as I was listening to Russell Kirk's biography of Edmund Burke about the difference and the distinction between revolution and reformation. What is the difference between revolution and reformation? They seem very similar, and if we're too loosey-goosey with our language, we might suppose they are the same thing, but they can't be the same thing. And it is interesting. One of the things that Russell Kirk keys in on with regards to Burke's support of the American Revolution as we know it, as we call it, is that Burke did not think of our American Revolution as a revolution. He thought of it as a war for independence, predicated on the grievance that the colonists were being deprived their rights as Englishmen. They, in fact, were the ones conserving. They were the ones trying to appeal to the rule of law because the rule of law was being flouted. It was being violated after a fashion. He, according to Kirk, didn't think much of claims by the colonists that they had natural rights and that their natural rights gave them 
the freedom to throw off King George III. He didn't think much of that, but he did think they had something to go on with their rights as Englishmen. Their rights as Englishmen were codified in black and white or sepia and black, maybe, if you will. Probably not the whitest of papers and parchments back then. Certainly not the whitest now that they have aged a few hundred years more. But it was all written down on purpose. So that way the terms would be clear. And no one could dispute later on and get funny with the language and say, oh, that's not what that means. That's the whole idea of contracts. You can say, well, that's, that's not what I meant. That's, I don't think that's what I said. I wouldn't have said that. No, it's right here, black and white, and there's your signature. See, we all agreed to these specific terms. And you don't want to be cruel in appealing to the letter of the law, but neither do you want to allow for cruelty where something agreed on is fraudulently upended at your expense and to the gain of somebody who is being unscrupulous and mean and unjust. It is interesting, and this is something I'll need to study further in order to understand it better. But a question I have after reading Russell Kirk's Edmund Burke, A Genius Reconsidered, is how Burke squared his scoffing at natural rights claimed by the founding fathers as they fought their war for independence, if you want to call it that instead of calling it the American Revolution. I can take your point. But the war for independence should not have, in Burke's view, at least concurrent to said war of independence, been fought on the basis of asserting natural rights. And I can see why, as I think about it, I can see why he would be uncomfortable with that based on his objection to the French Revolution. The French Revolution was all about natural rights. It was all about theory. And it was all based on human reason, which is an amorphous, nebulous, moving target, quite the opposite, a hard contract written down, clear for all to see, fixed. Thomas Paine's view that each generation is completely unbeholden to previous generations and has the right of revolution, the right to reinvent the wheel, to make it all up fresh, was despicable to Edmund Burke. He thought that was just a very awful, wicked, evil, destructive thing. And he wrote at great length against it. Reflections on the Revolution in France by Edmund Burke is very well-written, very eloquent, very well-reasoned, a little on the long side, but enjoyable all the same. And yet, when Burke comes to the problem of abuses in India, it seems to me, and I admit, I need to study this further to understand whether he changed his mind or there is some important distinction lost on me at present, it seems to me as though Burke changes his tune, at least to hear Russell Kirk tell it. It seems as though Burke's 
objection to the abuses of the people of India by representatives of the East India Trading Company, representatives of the British government serving in that country. It seems to me as though Burke's objection has a lot to do with the natural rights or God-given rights. And there's where the distinction might be that I don't understand well enough. And I'll admit, I don't understand that distinction well enough if there is a major distinction. I would think of whatever natural rights we would have as being one and the same with our God-given rights, inalienable rights. If they're not God-given, if they're not inalienable by virtue of us being created in the image of God equal, then agreed, we have no such thing as natural rights. There's only the state of nature. Might makes right in that case. I don't see in the state of nature when I watch a National Geographic documentary or some Discovery Channel Shark Week episode. I don't see a whole lot of the sea lion waxing eloquent with a great white shark about its natural rights. I don't see the zebra arguing forcefully with the lion or the leopard about its natural rights. The natural right is your lunch if you're not able to outrun or outmaneuver your predator. But if we are made in God's image, and if we have God-given rights because we have a duty before God, well, that's a horse of a different color, or a zebra of a different color, if you will. So I need to study that further. I'll, I'll just admit, the more you study and read, the more you'll find you have more to study and read, which is just fine. There's a weariness, as Solomon writes, to it, and yet it's necessary. It's an important thing. There's a richness that has to be tapped. So, homework for me, or if any of you out there happen to know that distinction and can give me a quick tip I would appreciate it. You can reach out to me. Teach me a thing or two here. But some other interesting things that I found out, that I learned in Edmund Burke, A Genius Reconsidered, that perhaps I should have picked up on, but they just weren't highlighted sufficiently in some other things I've read about Burke's, namely Yuval Levin's The Great Debate, which is all about the relationship between Edmund Burke and Thomas Paine, uh, they started out as kinds of friends, different kinds of friends, I would say, because they were very different kinds of men. They did not end up as good friends, particularly over the question of the revolution in France. But Kirk says Edmund Burke was for political parties on principle, which I find surprising and fascinating, actually. And that too is homework for me, something I need to study in greater depth. But it seems as though Burke was for political parties for much the same reason that he was for ordered liberty in other spheres. 
And in contrast to having a great man view of history and current events, where you would fixate obsessively on an Edmund Burke, Edmund Burke preferred that power would be diffused, that there would be something more substantive, like a whole party of men who deliberate and debate and come up with a plan of action together. You vote for a party, in his view, because it is safer than voting for a single man whose ambition might get him into some trouble, might cause him to get carried away. See also Donald Trump, actually. I have been a supporter of Trump. I have voted for him twice, but with reservations, to be sure. Particularly as America becomes more and more insolvent, not just financially, but politically, diplomatically, socially. The risk of us putting a dictator in charge of everything to clean it up and then our current form of government being completely abolished increases with each passing year. Burke did not view that as something to be desired. Nor do I think that's something that we should celebrate the onset of. There's a certain resignation that I have that such is just the way of things. That's just what happens. That's what will happen. And yet, it is something to be avoided and forestalled. I also know that I'm going to die someday. That doesn't mean that I just shrug. Not if I fear God. If I fear God, I steward the life that I have been given and I invest it for a purpose. I don't throw it away. If we fear God as citizens of this country, we should not shrug because, well, it's all going to end at some point anyways. No, that is a godless prescription. It's a very lazy and cowardly prescription. We shouldn't be cowards, but we should fear God. As such, we should insist on liberty. And we should be very concerned that we would be ruled by the arbitrary whims of a single man, that we would choose a king over us instead of taking responsibility for our liberty and for the affairs of state ourselves. The very fact that so many of us seem to be waiting for a great man to appear and save us from the present crisis tells me that we are very close to the edge. But for my part, I'm going to keep on studying. I'm going to keep on reading. I'm going to keep on thinking, meditating on these things and bringing them to you in this podcast. And I'm going to keep on encouraging you to read good books like Russell Kirk's Edmund Burke, A Genius Reconsidered. Towards that end, I think my Reformed conservative friends will be very pleased to learn that I just received in the mail last night my very first copy of a Gron van Prinster book, Unbelief and Revolution. I hear a lot in the Reformed conservative circle about van Prinster. 
also Abraham Kuyper, also Bavink, definitely Burke. So I'm starting with Burke because he seems to be a seminal figure. And then several of these others take cues from Burke. So why don't I start with Burke and work my way forward to where we're at? That seems best to me. seems good to me. But this Gron van Pinster work is Unbelief and Revolution. And I like the cover. I think this is a very attractive book. Well done. It's obvious that you have a revolution going on in the painting on the cover. Flames and smoke and soldiers and the firing of a gun. Are you a serious Christian alarmed about secularism? The back cover quotes James A. de Jong, retired president of Calvin Theological Seminary. Quote, then this volume gives you a powerful example of how it was once successfully met. Abraham Kuyper's intellectual and cultural crusade against secularism was profoundly indebted to Grohn von Prinster. This superb publication shows you how and why. You can neither adequately understand nor fully appreciate Kuyper, his associates, or the movement he mounted against the secularism of his era without knowing his mentor and inspiration. A little further up above on the back cover, it says, God's word illumines the darkness of society. Gron van Prinster's Unbelief in Revolution is a foundational work addressing the inherent tension between religion and modernity. As a historian and politician, Grohn was intimately familiar with the growing divide between secular culture and the church in his time. Rather than embrace this division, these lectures argue for a renewed interaction between the two spheres. Good so far. That's as far as I've gotten. But good so far. So far, so good. Another work I have started, and I am now 40 pages in, reading a question at a time each evening before bed. At least that's the goal, to get off the screens, to get better sleep by reading a print book in the evenings. I read plenty on my computer monitors, on my phone. I listen to plenty of audiobooks. I think it might help me to settle down, settle my mind before sleep to read Lex Rex, The Law and the King by Samuel Rutherford. And here too, I find that I have more homework to do. The more homework I have, the more homework I get. <laughs> but I'm told by Bobby McPherson that men like Burke and von Prinster did not necessarily embrace Samuel Rutherford. I also read in the foreword by Doug Wilson that many of the founding fathers of the United States of America, those who fought the War of Independence, if you will, Edmund Burke, not the American Revolution. We're not for revolutions, apparently. Strictly speaking, a war for independence, that might be all right. But the 
reformed conservative crowd did not necessarily embrace Samuel Rutherford. I'll have to read the book to find out what's in it. So, more on that to come. But, as I look at question four, for instance, there's a very interesting choice to make in how we take where the authority of a king originates. Question four is whether the king is only and immediately from God and not from the people. How the king is from God and how he is from the people. Royal power is three ways in the people. How royal power is radically in the people. The people make the king. How any form of government is from God. How government is a human ordinance. First Peter 2, 3. The people create the king, making a king and choosing a king not to be distinguished. David, not a king, formally, because anointed by God. And I won't read for you the whole chapter, obviously. But what Samuel Rutherford does is he goes back through several instances of kings coming to power in the Old Testament. And he quotes time and time again where it says that Israel made so-and-so a king. And he asks the question of what does that mean? Was this just an empty gesture on their part? Or was part of how God instituted the kingship of this or that man instead of all others, to the exclusion of all others, was part of the way God instituted this or that king by working through the people of Israel? It's a very interesting question if you think about it. It's a very important question if you think about it. It is not always clear who the king should be. Take, for instance, when you have an election and the results are disputed. What then? Do both guys get to become president? Is that how you compromise? In that moment, before an official winner has been declared, do you say, well, Romans 13, all authority is from God. Governing authority is instituted by God. Ask God. Let's let God decide. Now, we're not the kind of country that would cast lots to decide, although we might flip a coin, which is much the same thing. The point being, Rutherford is on to something here, and it's not for no reason that I have a copy of his book on my desk. So it bears careful reflection, careful thought, but it is important, I think, however... Burke and Rutherford might have disagreed on some particulars. It's important to note that Burke supported the American War for Independence, as they call it. He supported it. He did not support the French Revolution. So far as I've gotten in Rutherford, he seems to be arguing along the lines of the founders of the United States of America seems to be arguing nothing which would contradict what I've read of Burke thus far. So we'll see. But there has to be a mechanism, and the whole premise of the book is wrapped up in this title, this Latin title, Lex Rex, the law 
and the king, or the law is king. This idea that Burke opposed the actions of Warren Hastings, Governor General of India, based on the idea that there is a higher standard. Basically, there were no laws in the books, as Kirk tells it, which made illegal what the East India Trading Company did in India at the time that it did those things. So they acted in unscrupulous, dishonest ways towards the people of India, towards the rulers of India, towards the customs of India to get a selfish advantage, to exploit the people of India for their own selfish gain. And yet Burke's condemnation of their actions was predicated on the fact that there is already law on the books against what you've done. And that law is from God. Whether we've written it down in our books, God has set the standard. You knew what you did was wrong. We all know what you did was wrong. The book should be thrown at you. Burke predicted that the British Empire would be punished for what had happened to the Indian people in the name of the British Empire, which is very interesting. And I think it should serve as a warning to the United States. What is done in our name overseas is very much our business, very much our business. What we might shrug at being done in our name will come back to haunt us. Or someday we and our descendants will be proud of what we've done and what we've said and what we've insisted on. I think it's very much to our shame as a country right now what's happening in the Ukraine, in part because there is a great deal of evidence that the same sort of selfish, self-serving corruption of supposed public servants of our government compared against what Burke was decrying in his government in relation to India was carried out, has been carried out by the likes of this president. Not just this president, but in particular this president. I hear a lot of Republicans saying that we don't need to get involved in the Ukraine. Ukraine's had problems with corruption for a long, long time. There's propaganda coming out of Ukraine. We're hearing things that aren't all necessarily true coming out of Ukraine. We can't possibly know what's happening in the Ukraine. I would say, for my part, it's fairly safe to conclude that Russia invaded Ukraine. Can we just agree on that? Can we agree that Russia is currently trying to take over the Ukraine, trying to pound it into submission, killing men, women, and children in the process? Can we agree on that much? Propaganda notwithstanding, is that really happening? What I'm concerned about is that there's such a fear that we would get drawn into World War III with Russia that we might be willing to pacify Russia just to spite Biden and the Democrats. That is not a winning formula. That is not a recipe for success. Now, on the flip side, it would be a grave mistake 
to give him wartime powers just as he has declared an end to the COVID emergency, just as the national emergency has concluded, jump into another one. So you have an excuse to maybe suspend elections in November. Look, what's that over there? A change of subject. And yet with each opportunity that passes for us to hold accountable those who claim to represent our country overseas, say, for instance, allowing their sons to sit on the boards of energy companies in exchange for influence. And then the last time around that Russia was threatening Ukraine, then Vice President Biden demands that they fire a prosecutor who is going after said energy company on whose board his son sat with zero qualifications, zero experience. It's a conflict of interest to say the least. And then he brags publicly before the 2020 election about having the son of a bitch fired because he was going to withheld, withhold uh, foreign aid, American foreign aid to Ukraine. Basically, leave them to the tender mercies of Vladimir Putin. One gets the impression that Biden has worked both sides of the table, taking money from the wife of the mayor of Moscow, allowing his son to take money from corrupt Ukrainian energy companies like Burisma, also allowing the Chinese Communist Party to give money to his family vis-a-vis investments from CCP banks. He's hedged his bets. He's diversified his portfolio. One thing's for sure, he benefits from the conflict. It's the wrong way to go about it to say the Ukrainian people brought this on themselves. We don't care what's happening to them. No, no, no. You're always going to have propaganda in wartime. You're always going to have the fog of war, as they call it, making unclear just precisely what is happening and who's telling the truth. When lives are on the line and one side is very, very motivated to keep you and your superpower military out of it, and another faction is desperate for help, and would really love it. Whatever it does to you and the rest of the world, their world is being blown to smithereens. They would love if you would bring your superpower military into this on their side and rescue them from the lion. And yet, what we're doing right now <clears throat> should be understood in the context of what was already done. Zelensky... Ukraine's leader spoke with our Senate in recent days, laid the blame for this current invasion squarely at the feet of President Biden. If the sanctions had been leveled on Putin months ago, this invasion, he feels, would not have happened in the first place. Biden's advisors, leadership of both parties, implored him 
put the sanctions on Putin now. For that matter, we could have at a minimum produced our own energy instead of buying it from Russia. At a minimum, was that so much to ask that you wouldn't fuel his war machine before they go in and invade their neighbor? Is that too much to ask when you're talking tough publicly that you would not buy hundreds of thousands of barrels a day from Russia? I don't think that's too much to ask. I think that makes a whole lot of sense. The fact that what was done instead does not make any sense should be thought of, at least considered, in light of what Burke was up against in his prosecution of Warren Hastings, Governor General of India. Also, we should consider that Burke and his resistance to Jacobinism, the French Revolution's armed doctrine, bears some resemblance to the struggle of conservatives in America against the corruption, the godlessness of the Democrat Party. And I say that, that might seem like strong words. We are not dealing with people who share common values. Increasingly, we are dealing with people in the Democrat Party who are opposed on principle to everything we are for. And it is very hard to see how you have a government when you can't agree on any principle. When every appearance of temporary agreement seems to be very shortly found out as a bait and switch, as a setup to mock you, to make you look stupid. Very notable exceptions being Senator Joe Manchin from West Virginia. You want to talk about bipartisanship? Joe Manchin puts the man in mansion. Takes a lot of guts. A lot of, if you will forgive me, cojones. For him to be siding with Republicans, if that's what it takes, to put the interests of the country and his state ahead of party. But what would be better is if his party were putting the interests of this country first. That is not what we find. I was surprised to find that Burke is four parties. And it is worth putting a caveat in that statement. He was for parties on principles. That is to say, parties should be unified on certain governing principles. And when you have those principles, you join the associated party. And when you've joined that party on principle, because you agree with maybe nine out of ten, of the things that that party is for. You are loyal to that party. You don't go trading parties just because you might get more power for yourself. Burke had an opportunity, as Russell Kirk tells it, to join the government formed by one of the competing parties in British politics. And Burke declined. On principle, he said he would rather retire in obscurity and stick to his principles than give up on his principles and his party to join a different party. 
But I think what you find in characters like Joe Manchin, for instance, who are Democrats, is that their principles for joining the Democrat Party are precisely why they're going to work with Republicans if that's what it takes. They're not committed first and foremost to the Democrat Party. They're committed first and foremost to this country. And the Democrat Party is supposed to be a means to the end of promoting the interests of the United States of America. So also Republicans, I think, by and large, are Republicans because they genuinely believe, whether you always agree with them or not, whether I always agree with them or not, for that matter, they genuinely believe that such is the way to promote the best interest of the United States of America. That's an interesting thing. And again, homework for me. But increasingly, the Democrat Party seems first and foremost about itself. And I see more and more reports, the more time goes on, that pollsters and retiring Democrat lawmakers who've been in office for decades are warning the party leadership you are facing the extinction of your party because you are so about power for yourselves. You're mismanaging this party, and yet you want to beat Americans over the head, demanding they let you manage every facet of their lives. You haven't been faithful with the little you have here in managing the affairs of the party. What makes you think you're going to be ultra-competent managing the affairs of day-to-day life for Americans. But that's what elections are for. And that's where also Lex Rex, the law and the king, should be something we're studying every night. That's why I'm trying to study it each night now that I've picked it up. That's why I'm reading Edmund Burke. If God works through the people to make a man a king or to bring a party into power to raise up governments, civil authorities, as Paul writes about in Romans 13, then we should be very careful in how we exercise whatever will we have with regards to that responsibility. And maybe, just maybe, If you are thinking you should be studying these things and you should be pondering these things, maybe just maybe the Lord is working in that as well. Similarly to our theology, I've heard often in my young adult life that it's not the job of the Christian to be the Holy Spirit. And what people mean by that in context is it's not your job to go and tell someone that what they're doing, what they're saying is wrong. Let the Holy Spirit convict them. And to that I say, have you read the Bible? Have you read God's word? Don't you know that the Holy Spirit very often works through God's people to preach repentance, to offer correction? There's a laziness and a cowardice both to the way we undertake the business of the church and the business of our civil responsibility and authority in this country. And that has been the case for far too long. And it's time we put it to rest. It's time we be 
Bereans about these things. Search the scriptures daily to see whether they are so. Double check our math. Make sure when we say 2 plus 2 equals 4, it is indeed 4. And that we're not going along with the many. We're not fearing men. We're not saying the equivalent of 2 plus 2 equals 5 because we give up. Another quote here I'll read for you. I flatter myself, Burke writes, that I love a manly, moral, regulated liberty as well as any gentleman of that society, the Revolution Society, be he who he will. And perhaps I have given as good proofs of my attachment to that cause in the whole course of my public conduct. He writes that in Reflections. He also writes in Reflections, In some people I see great liberty indeed, in many, if not in the most, an oppressive, degrading servitude. But what is liberty without wisdom and without virtue? It is the greatest of all possible evils, for it is folly, vice, and madness without tuition or restraint. Those who know what virtuous liberty is cannot bear to see it disgraced by incapable heads on account of their having high-sounding words in their mouths. Another quote from him. Men are qualified for civil liberty in exact proportion to their disposition to put moral chains upon their own appetites, in proportion as their love to justice is above their rapacity, in proportion as their soundness and sobriety of understanding is above their vanity and presumption, in proportion as they are more disposed to listen to the counsels of the wise and good, in preference to the flattery of knaves, society cannot exist unless a controlling power upon will and appetite he placed somewhere. And the less of it there is within, the more there must be without it is ordained in the eternal constitution of things that men of intemperate minds cannot be free. Their passions forge their fetters. Check out Edmund Burke, A Genius Reconsidered by Russell Kirk. You won't be sorry you did. Again, it's included with Audible Plus. It's only six and a half hours long. If you listen on double speed, that's only three hours, 15 minutes. That's nothing. Nothing could do that in a day, in an afternoon, work on a house project, go for a drive, check it out. I got to run though. It's a Sunday morning. I'm on schedule today. I need to get to work, listen to some more books. But as always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.